Good. Thank you, Craig. Good evening, everyone. I, I tell you, um, I will tell you a story about uh, Craig Barrett. And the story I will tell you is that I love him. And I say that I love Jesus in him. I, I even love the Texas in him. And that's to say something, you know. Um, uh, he's just been such a great friend to me. He and his wife, Nancy, are very important to me. And I know they're important to you. I, I admire all of you um, so much in doing this. Uh, you know, the, these last two weeks, we have all been on a steep learning curve how to have a virtual church, how to claim that um, gift of spiritual unity in spite of distance. And, uh, and we know that the spirit is everywhere and we can have that unity and that's what we claim tonight. Because as Craig began, uh, it is right, we are um, always under spiritual attack. Our spiritual warfare is not an option. It's just not an option. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, ESV. You know this verse well, but let me read it to you. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That uh, verse years ago helped me learn how to love the unlovable, recognizing that it wasn't about the flesh, but it was about how the evil, uh, the spiritual forces would try to use my, um, my, my discomfort with them against me, not against them. And so tonight, bondages, deliverance, and victory. Uh, I want to make sure we get to the victory part. But um, I think so many Christians, so many of us live on the defense. We live as defensive Christians. Uh, that's something we're breaking out of right now. You know, one of the redemptive things that God is using this crazy internet system and, and these Zoom meetings and Facebook Live and so forth is showing us that um, the church doesn't have to be contained in a building. We know that the church is the people, not the building, but golly, we love to go in those buildings and, you know, get your seat and find your place. And, 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 and we sort of feel safe and comfortable there. Um, I loved one Facebook post a week or so ago when someone was showing the picture of an empty church and they said, the church is not empty, it's deployed. We have been deployed. Now, that's just part of the redemption that God's doing with all of this coronavirus, uh, the, some of the appropriate understanding about being uh, having an abundance of caution, at the same time, some of it becoming a bit of um, real fear and hysteria, which we don't want to live by. We live by with an abundance of faith also. So tonight, first, a sort of an introduction, are you on uh, defense or are you on offense? One of my friends here at St. James likes to say this. He said, too many Christians are in the witness protection program the witness protection program, uh, meaning that um, uh, they are hiding and they're Christians, but no one would know it. Um, defense or offense. Matthew chapter 16. I hope you've got Bibles now. You know, I'm, uh, you know, Craig, you've got everybody to put these little black squares up and, you know, maybe a couple people might, let me see their face, but, but it's okay because I'm not used to just talking to black squares. But um, here's a Bible. I hope you've got a Bible. Matthew chapter 16, Peter's confession of Jesus. Matthew 16. Uh, we know that scripture well as um, Jesus has taken the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It's a pagan place. Uh, it's north, it's northern and northern part of the Holy Land. And he asks them that question, who do people say I am? And uh, the disciples give him an answer. And then he says, uh, but who do you say I am? And then Peter answers, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, you know, we all know that in many ways we assume 
Peter probably just surprised himself. He surprised himself when he said that. And then Jesus said this, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So that means it came by revelation. Then he went on to say this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On this rock I will build my church. Now, the rock is not Peter himself. The rock is the revelation that Peter had, and that is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But then we hear that um, offensive statement um, that the gates, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Too often we have heard that, and too long we have heard that verse uh, as well. Uh, we can batten down the hatches as the church. We are safe, protected, and hell can't get in. It's not about that. It's not a defensive statement. It's an offensive statement. Now, what it means is, in fact, that what we can do is that we can storm the gates of hell. That's what we encourage to do, to storm the gates of hell. Um, and uh, and we, are, we are proclaimed victory. We are promised victory. So uh, now, for you, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, that's the same question that he asked uh, Peter, the disciples, and it's a, it's, a, it's a question that we're asked every day, and we answer it by our actions, how we live in victory, how we live either defensively or offensively as people of the Spirit and as Christians. Who is Jesus? Well, we know he's fully God and fully human, but which one do you say? Now, you know, that's an impossible thing to say. Well, okay, I've got it. I know he's fully God and fully human. It's impossible to keep that balanced all the time. But uh, let me give you a test. The um, woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, that's John chapter 4. John chapter 4 uh, at verse 16. Um, in that um, Jesus is traveling uh, through Samaria and uh, he comes to Jacob's well. He meets a woman there. Uh, we know that story. I'm sure you know that well. Uh, he asks her for some water to drink. And of course, the argument always is, well, now why, why are you talking to a woman? And we know that she's there in the middle of the day because she's avoiding all the other women who would have been hauling water, uh, receiving water early in the morning. And um, and so there he says, well, if you knew the person that you were talking with, you'd ask him for living water. Um, and of course, she says, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to be thirsty again. And then Jesus says this to her. Now, here's the test. He says, go and call your husband to come here. And the woman answered her, I have no husband. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the, woman you now, the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Well, the test is this. How did he know it? How did Jesus know that? Go and call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You have had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. How did he know that? If you answer that question by saying, well, he's because he's God, you failed. Let that sink in a minute. You failed because you see, um, Jesus answered that question because he was given a word of knowledge by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that you and I are encouraged to live by. You see, if Jesus didn't experience it the same way you and I do, he didn't save us from it. And so that's how we have to begin to learn to live offensively and not just defensively. Um, who is Jesus? Yes, he's fully God, 
but he also has to be fully human. And so in that, uh, you can say, well, okay, he knew, he knew what the, about this woman because he was God. Well, that doesn't help me a bit as far as living my life. Uh, it does help me to know that if he received that, that knowledge by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit I can have, then that gives me a chance to live in a broken world, in a world that's controlled by coronavirus right now. Um, Jesus, in coming to the coming incarnate, uh, maintained his deity, but he surrendered his divinity. He maintained his deity, but he surrendered his divinity. Um, his deity never ceased to be God, did he? He never ceased to be God, but he did surrender his, his divinity. That's his um, um, omniscient, all the omnis. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent. All of those things, he surrendered those. We know, we know that from Ephesians, from Philippians chapter two. Uh, Philippians chapter two, verse five says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Emptied himself, taking the form of a, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What did he empty himself of? His divinity. He limited himself. Only one who is all-powerful can limit himself. And so God's self-limitation in Jesus Christ. So therefore, we recognize that, in fact, Jesus is living by the same power of the Spirit that you and I are living by. That becomes even more clear as we come this next week. We come to Monday, Thursday. We hear those words, let this cup pass from me. And then how he faces um, the agony of the passion and so forth. That, um, uh, yes, he knew the prophecies, and, but, he, but he was living by the direction of the, of the will of the Father. So here's an important statement. Jesus did not come to show you what God can do. He came to show you what you and I can do in right relationship with God. Jesus did not come to show you what God can do. He came to show you what we can do in right relationship with God. Now, all that is simply an introduction to how we might live um, offensively using the spiritual tools and weapons of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ. Um, John chapter 14, that's that great chapter, John 14, um, after the end of the Last Supper, um, and Jesus has told the disciples what's coming, and, and uh, in that, what they, he said, well, now, they're, they're upset. Of course they're upset, because he says, well, this was coming. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be tried. And then he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house and many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. We know that text so well. At the same time, in the middle of that chapter, at verse 12, he says this. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So there he says that not only will we do the works he's doing, but we'll do even greater works. That doesn't mean bigger healings. That means there'll be more of us. We are the body around the world, whereas he was always one person in one place, emptied. God who was um, divine, uh, deity of God, but also fully human. So um, do you live defensively or offensively? Defensively or offensively? Again, back to Matthew 16. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh of us not told you this, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock 
I will found my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then the next part, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And do you hear that authority? Do you hear that gift of authority that we've been given? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, sometimes it sound, that sounds backwards. Sometimes it sounds like, well, that means that whatever I can bind here is going to be restricted in heaven. No, it's the other way around. And that is that if it's not in heaven, it shouldn't be here. If, um, but if, uh, if God doesn't have it, if it's not in heaven, we can bind it. We can take authority over it here. I often tell people, uh, God can't give you what he doesn't have. He can't give you what he doesn't have. God does have anger, doesn't he? And so anger is a God-given emotion, and we have anger. We're not told not to live there, but we, we know what anger is. At the same time, God doesn't have cancer. So cancer doesn't come from God. Um, we have so lost the revelation of God as a healer that too often what happens is that now we've begun to assign to God the works of the devil. Because we've so lost the revelation of God as not just all-powerful, but as a healer as one who seeks good for us. And so too often what happens, we begin to, to assign the works of, of the devil to God. And so we say, oh, well, you know, coronavirus, look, God did, did this to us. Now, you know, God has purpose in everything. God wastes nothing. He has purpose in everything. And so here we are now in the midst of, of this, all these restrictions and how life is changing for us because of coronavirus. How are we going to, as Christians, are going to deal with it? Well, one phrase I've been using is this. Yes, everyone's been saying we do deal with it with an abundance of caution. Absolutely. We also deal with it with an abundance of faith. Um, Jesus said something else, a very practical statement for me. When he sent the disciples out, he told them, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep before the wolves. Oh, man, thank you for that. But then he says this. Uh, he says, be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Now, what that tells me is don't do stupid stuff. Don't do stupid things. At the same time, always be faithful. Always be faithful. So um, all of that brings us to this, that tonight I want to encourage you to use and to begin to know about and to use the spiritual tools that God has given us in Jesus Christ, that we have been given spiritual tools. You have authority. You have this authority under the covering of Jesus Christ. You have this authority. And so what are those tools? We're just going to list a few of them there, and then, and then maybe I'll, I'll, ask, I'll, I'll invite some questions, and Craig can help moderate all that, and we'll have a bit of a discussion if we can. Right, Craig? Because I know you're in charge over there. He's not. Yes, sir. Case. Yes, yes, sir. That's correct. Not, <laughs> not successfully getting everybody in our group right this second, so yes, but I'm here. I understand. Well, they'll get there. They won't. You know, that's, that's sort of how these things are. Yeah. So the tools of spiritual warfare. First of all, let me remind you about what those tools look like. Those tools don't just look like uh, the weapons of war. Sometimes they are the weapons of worship. Remember how on Joshua chapter 6, um, how Joshua was told to defeat um, the, the people of Jericho and to um, defeat the walls and to inhabit the, the city of Jericho. Remember he told them to march around the walls and to blow the trumpet and shout and the walls become falling down. You've all sang the little kids song and so forth the tools of spiritual warfare. Well, first one that I want to talk about is, is forgiveness. Now you think, well, that's not a 
tool. We know all about forgiveness, and you're right. We do know about forgiveness. There are probably three main authorities we're giving in the blood of Jesus. The first one is forgiveness. The second one is healing, and the third one then is um, a power over, uh, over, over, over the um, spiritual world. But we, don't, but what we as, especially as good Anglicans, we know all about forgiveness. We know what it means to be forgiven. We know how to say the confession. We know how to have, receive absolution. Uh, but the one thing we need to remember is this, probably the greatest um, bondage that we as Christians have is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. One of the greatest bondages that we have is as unforgiveness, as, as our unforgiveness of other people not being willing to forgive. Uh, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go to him. Let me turn to that and read that, if I may. Matthew 18, 15. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along with me. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, and go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, um, that's one of the hardest things that we do. Um, one of my friends just did that with me uh, a few weeks ago, came to me and told me of a hurt. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it, was a, it was a powerful thing that she did um, and a faithful thing that she did. And I was blessed to be forgiven and to forgive. There's an amazing reconciliation there. But the wonderful thing is there was a bondage that's released, that we are set free from, um, from uh, the bondages of unforgiveness. Um, uh, maybe some of you know the quote from um, the, um, let's see, uh, Craig, I'll get you to unmute. Remind me, who was the president, um, the president-elect after South Africa uh, ended apartheid, who was in prison? I can never remember this guy's name. Oh, well, um, whoever that was, somebody, somebody will tell me in a few moments. Uh, I've gotten, so at St. James, I preach, um, um, I preach conversational sermons because people remind me when I can't think of something. They say, oh, it's that. Um, Nelson Mandela. Thank you, Kendall. I appreciate that. Uh, Kendall's on there somewhere. Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela said this, that uh, when he was asked by a reporter, didn't he hate the people who imprisoned him on Robben Island? Um, what, he, uh, what he said was this, no, I don't hate them because to hate someone is to drink poison and expect them to die. To drink poison and expect them to die. Now, that's what it means for us to be held hostage by the bondage of unforgiveness. Now, I understand that one of the most um, dangerous things it seems like that we would go to do is to go to someone and ask for their forgiveness or tell them that we need, to, that, that we, they need, we need their forgiveness. We need to forgive them. Uh, it's hard because we might be rejected. Uh, with that said, um, one thing I always encourage people to do is to uh, before you go to seek reconciliation with a person, go seek reconciliation about them with God, because God's always faithful. But so um, forgiveness, unforgiveness, the, uh, the gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ is one of the most important tools that we have for spiritual warfare to set us free from things that can bind us. Um, now, so uh, another, another tool, the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let me read that for you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Mm -hmm. um, this is in the chapter about the, the uh, Sabbath rest. 
And um, uh, the writer writes this, verse 11, chapter four, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the sword of the spirit is one of our spiritual tools. It's a, uh, it's a tool that is so discerning, the spirit is so discerning that it can separate and divide us from things. That means it can separate us from things that bind us. Now, most of the time, what I've, how I've seen that used is in separating us from bondages to other people, um, sometimes also to temptations or things or addictions and so forth. Um, I think it's useful for all of those things. But too often, we try to use a psychological approach to those instead of a spiritual approach using the sword of the spirit. Now, I'm going to talk about how, we use, how I use those in a few minutes, sort of to sum all this up. But so first, forgiveness, but rather really the, the, um, the act of unforgiveness. Then the sword of the spirit, using the sword of the spirit to separate us from bondages to other people or situations and things. All right. Um, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, a spiritual tool. Often, um, we always end our prayers by saying in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we do that too flippantly. Remember the name of Jesus is not an incantation. Just saying that does not have anything to do with the prayer. The name, saying the name of Jesus is an indication of our relationship to him. And so that's, that's what we want to keep in the, in, the, in the forefront of this, that the power of the name of Jesus literally has no inherent power. It's powerful because of what Jesus did. It's powerful because he's the perfect sacrifice. And I may use that, you may use his name only to the extent that I'm related to him, only to the extent that I'm under his authority, only to the extent that I'm his disciple, that I'm leading by following him. And so the name of Jesus, um, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls the name of the Lord of Jesus will be saved. Well, what a powerful thing. Mark 16, the end of Mark's gospel is rarely preached on. I, I preached on it for a month one time, but Really preached on it. it ends by the resurrection um, statements. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, too often we hear this thing about serpents and poison and we just rerun to hide. Um, we talk more about that at another time. But what I do want you to hear is this, that how they were, in the name of Jesus, they were cast out demons. Remember, there is a spiritual world. There is a fallen angel that we call the devil or Satan or the enemy. Um, and then there are, are demons, uh, fallen angels, which, who follow him. We have authority over them, though, only in the name of Jesus. And we want to take that authority. So because we're under attack um, almost daily, if not all the time. So unforgiveness, sword of the spirit, the name of Jesus, and then the word of God. The word of God, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, through the word of God, uh, the power of the word of God. Now, too often we hear that verse from Romans 10 and we think, oh, well, you know, if I, 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 faith comes by hearing the word of God, that's not what it says. It does not say faith comes by hearing the word of God. It says hearing 
comes by hearing the word of God. And faith comes by listening to that. So what it means is this, the more I know what God has said, meaning the more I know this word, scripture, the more I know this, the more I'll know what he's saying currently. The same way Jesus heard from the, from the spirit that the Samaritan woman had five husbands. So the word of God is powerful because it also speaks to us now. Word of knowledge uh, and so forth. So the more I know what God has said in his word written, the more I may know what he's saying to me now and to you. And of course, lastly, there is the whole armor of God, which we clothe ourselves with from Romans, I mean, from Ephesians chapter six, um, where it tells us that in fact, the battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not battling against people. We're not just battling against mean people or people who are rude or people who don't practice social distancing right now or whatever the thing that bothers you the most. But it's how the spiritual world, the dark powers, use those in our hearts, in our spirit, in our lives. So how would I use these tools? How, how do I use these almost daily with people that I minister to and so forth? And that is that often uh, as I sit with people, um, and we have pastoral uh, counseling and so forth. The problem is a relationship. Is it the relationship with themselves, with a loved one, or a relationship with part of their lives and so forth? And so one of the things we ask them to do is this. We use those tools. I ask them to use those tools. And that's what I want you to get tonight, to use those tools, because in using these tools, what we do is achieve victory. That's how we're set free. When I first started going to Guyana in South America, uh, I met a gentleman there um, who... Um, said something that was a great gift of love and truth. He said this, you Americans are very good at getting people forgiven. You are not good at getting them delivered. You're good at getting them forgiven, but not good at getting them delivered. So that's why they live in this, rep in this cycle of sin all the time, deliverance. So forgiveness is where we start. So I would ask people, I said, okay, um, first of all, say your prayers. Uh, will you forgive the person? And will you ask for forgiveness about this person, what you've done with them? And this is just between the two of us. Do that. You go through the tool of forgiveness, being forgiven and asking for forgiveness. But then I would say, I want to take the sword of the spirit and cut you free from the spiritual bondage to this person, spiritual bondage to what they've done to you, spiritual bondage to uh, the time that you've carried that hurt or the anger or this, um, this, these words, whatever that is, cut you free from that spiritual bondage. Then I would, I would want to take the name of Jesus and take authority over the, the demonic forces that have been working there, how they were perceived by them. I often call them harassing thoughts. Now, we understand thoughts. We understand psychology. We don't often understand spirit. But the point is, is we take the sword of the spirit and we cut people free from that in the name of Jesus to tell those demons to go, to flee. They must go because... Jesus is their Lord. Remember, they recognize him. And then I would uh, plead the word of God over them, healing and so forth, and then place the whole armor of God on them. Um, before you go out in the mornings, do you place the armor of God on yourself, on your children? Um, do you do that uh, sometimes when you're about to do something that's important or a little frightening? Or maybe now we should all be putting on the armor of God every day as we go out um, and, and a place to a world where we might get affected with uh, this very deadly virus. The whole arm of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, the shoes, the gospel preparation of peace, and then the word of God, the whole arm of God.
Well, I hope that you've been taking some notes and um, because I have to assume that what I've been seeing is sort of fast and uh, there's a lot of this to this, but I hope that you can see this just more than just learning. It's not just facts and figures. It's not just empirical values, but these are tools that we can use in everyday life and that's where we live. Because remember the battle is not against people, but against principalities and powers. So now, lastly, I would also encourage you to claim and use the power of the blood of the Lamb. Um, we are about to, to be part of all that. Here we come to Palm Sunday, and then next week, um, uh, we, uh, we come to our Holy Week because of the Passover week that the Jews celebrated, um, that gift of the Passover week. My email just invaded me. There we go. Um, the week of Passover week, um, is centered around the blood of the Passover lamb. So the blood of the Passover lamb, that's from Exodus chapter 12, when uh, God told to tell Moses to call the elders and to go and kill the lamb and then um, select the lamb um, and kill the Passover lamb and put the blood on the door. Put the blood on the doorframe of the house. Get in there a second. There we go. Put the blood on the doorframe of the house uh, and it will protect you. So he said, take the hyssop. Puts them on the lintel and on the frame. Now you see, you're making a cross when you do that. And that protected them from the angel of death. It protected them because, not just because with the blood of that lamb, but because they were being obedient to God's word. So now I want to also take that literally uh, in the fact that I often at St. James, and of course in my own home now, I walk out to the door and I place my hand on the door frame and I say, Father, I will plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I place the blood of Jesus, the lamb, on my door, on this door frame, that nothing may enter my home unless it first comes in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I would encourage you to do that because I think in so many ways it's being obedient to, G to God the Father and saying, yes, protect our home. Protect our home from all the spiritual forces of, in the, of this world. Protect our home from the coronavirus. Okay, we're all living un in, in many ways, social distancing and being careful, washing and so forth. But at the same time, um, we're using an abundance of caution, but we're also using an abundance of faith. Are we doing that and um, making sure that we live uh, offensively as Christians, as people who've been given great authority because we follow Jesus Christ? Well, some more to say, but let me stop there. Craig, I invite you to come back in and maybe some faces could come up and I'd love to, to have some questions or people say, um, how do you do this? Or why would you do that? Or are you kidding?